Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. So welcome. I'm looking forward to us uh, having a look at this passage today from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Maybe you want to get that open. And as you look through it, I'll read the whole thing through soon. We're going to see uh, this phrase, the church of the living God, actually appears in it. So keep your eyes open for when that happens. Um, This week, I got a friend request on Facebook from somebody. I didn't know them. That isn't the first time that's happened. But I checked it was a real person. They were friends of friends in various ways. So I said yes. Went on it and realized this person only spoke in Spanish. And it turns out I think they were in Colombia. I looked through and found that there was a picture that they posted from something that had been done at their church. Or perhaps they're involved in some form of capacity there at their church. So I was interested in it when I saw this picture. And I don't know... Spanish at all, but I kind of thought, oh, filtros, and um, it kind of lodged in my mind. And then the other morning, as I was waking up, I really felt the Lord saying to me at 6 a.m., he was like, wake up and I'm going to tell you something important. And, and I came downstairs and I was praying about it and I really felt it was to do with this idea, the filters of Jesus. And that ultimately, Jesus didn't just call people to come to church. The call of the, of the Great Commission was not go into all the church and make disciples. It was for the church to go into all the world and make disciples. And we can see here as we look through this, and I began to think about it, that there was various filters that Jesus used from uh, going out to the world and, yes, loving everybody, but then narrowing it down in terms of his focus, in terms of who would be his disciples and who would be uh, disciples. You make disciples. My life verse is Mark 8, verse 34, which Zoe wrote in the Bible many years ago, and it says in there that Jesus called the crowd to him together with his disciples and said, whoever would come after me must take up their cross and follow me. And there's a distinction there between the crowd and the disciples. And my question as we start this off is, what about you? Are you part of the crowd today? Have you yet become a disciple of Jesus? And how do we together go and make more disciples for Jesus? So I started to pray and look into this. And I started to check out in the Bible and pray through and think, what were the filters that were put in place? And, you know, as we said at the top of this funnel, I suppose you could put that God so loved the world that he gave his son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And that's the, the good news of Jesus is for everybody. And, uh, and then there was a group of people specifically in Judea. You know, large crowds would gather and come and hear Jesus. And in these crowds, they were given what was needed. And he prayed for the sick and he loved indiscriminately. And he actually went to the, the hardest to reach people and the most unloved people and spent a lot of time with them. And he gave them what was needed. Somebody would say to him, um, he actually asked that question, what do you want from me? And they might say, I'm blind, I want to see. Or on various occasions, he would feed thousands and thousands of people. And he gave them um, bread and he gave them uh, food to be able to eat. He did it with 5,000 men plus the rest, 4,000 men plus all the women and children. These enormous crowds that were gathered together to be able to to connect to Jesus and that's what he did for the crowd but ultimately this crowd all they were doing was consumers they were consumers and Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 that he would only teach them in parables he could only teach them in stories and illustrations and he never went very far never went very deep he actually said the secrets of the kingdom are hidden 
from those people. Now, I don't worry about you, but I don't want the secrets of the kingdom to be hidden from me. And I don't want Jesus just to be able to tell me stuff and me not really get it. But that doesn't mean that sometimes when I do get what it is that Jesus says, that I always want to hear what it is that Jesus said. And in, in, uh, in John chapter 6, verses 26 to 60, you have this incredible long read, and I haven't got time to be able to go through it, where where um, Jesus kind of thins the crowd out somewhat. And he says, you're only following me because of the miracles, because of the bread. You, you, you're a consumer. You're just going to come along and keep eating. And he just fed the 5,000 at the start of that. But before long, he's saying to them, um, no, they're saying, oh, give us a sign and all this kind of stuff. And he said, he said, listen, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. And he starts talking about his body. And him, him being the bread of life, and they've got to eat him and all of this. And people are like, yuck, that's horrible, Jesus. That's a terrible, horrible picture. And his disciples are like, do you know, the, the people didn't like that sermon. They really didn't like that illustration, Jesus. And, and, and he says, at this point, many of his disciples, follow, many of his followers, followers from the crowd, they started to, to, to not follow him any longer from that point on. And so he kind of brought the numbers down quite substantially by what he did, because actually he wasn't just bothered about drawing together a crowd. Actually, Jesus wanted some people who were going to change the world with him and for him. And so he got a group of people from that who were the committed. These were, wasn't just the, the crowd, but these were the people who were the committed, and they were given power to be able to represent him. Um, there, there was a larger group, and then there was this group of 70 people. And in Luke chapter 10, you see that he sent them out to fully represent him, to go and do what he was going to do. They would go out, he said, before he went out, he would send them out into the places where he was going to, to go. And, and he said, you know, you just have to depend on me fully for what happens here and I want you to heal the sick and I want you to pray for blessing on people and I want to tell them about the kingdom of God and demonstrate those things to them and if people reject you they reject me so uh, you know don't you get too worried about that and uh, and and then he said and then and it says that they went out and they actually saw themselves do all the same kind of things that Jesus himself had done and then they came back and reported back to him and actually he gave them feedback you know, we often say on the staff team at Ivy that feedback is the breakfast of champions. And you know, that doesn't mean everybody always likes it. I remember at one point somebody in the staff team saying, do you know what, I hate feedback. I hate the idea of feedback. But I'll be honest, I want feedback. I love feedback because that's what helps me to grow. I know what I'm, what's working and know what's not working. And when, when they, these guys came back, Jesus said to all these people, he said, you know, this is great, but here's what your focus should be. And here's what you should be rejoicing in and all those kind of things. And he assessed the practice because he wanted them to, to, to go from the crowd to being the committed. And then there, there was this, you know, this was like a filter that he put in place. And then the next, because the next filter was, um, was to give him all. I've already said that in, in Mark's gospel um, it, that he, he called the crowd to him and he said, you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. And Jesus said many things like this about that actually to follow him wouldn't always be fun, wouldn't always be easy. He says, you're going to be rejected. He said, you're going to be hated because of me. He would say all these things which were not popular if you're just trying to build an Instagram following or get more followers on social media. But that wasn't what Jesus was all about. He wasn't bothered about that. And actually, there was an occasion when he met a guy who came up to him who would be the perfect follower. He's got money, he's got charisma, he's got gifts, 
He's, he's already got influence. He's the man who has everything comes to Jesus and asks the question in Mark chapter 10. So what do I need to do now? And then Jesus says to him effectively, give it all away and come and follow me. Just, this is what I want you to do. I can see your stuff is getting in the way of me. I want you to give me all. And that's really what he was saying to everybody when he said, take up your cross and follow me. He was saying, if you want to really get close, you can get as close as you want to, but it's going to cost you to do that. That there's a cost that comes with, with going from the crowd to the committed and to become part of the core. And out of that, um, there was this other group of people who became, there was the 12 apostles, and even in the 12, there were three. And what they were given was time. They spent, it, it's been, Dave Ferguson who's going to speak soon at, at launch. It, he has tracked, as you look through the Gospels, the amount of time that Jesus gave to the, the, the core committed, the core group, right at the start of this, versus all of the rest. And, and it turns out that Jesus gave two-thirds of his time with the core group across the three years of his ministry. And then he spent less and less time just doing stuff to entertain, if you like, to keep the crowd following him and becoming part of him. And again, it, it, that's not a good, a good way to really grow a gathering of a following and to get lots of people who, who give you likes. And, uh, but Jesus wasn't interested in people giving him likes. He wanted them to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he puts those filters in place. And, and I, I think he still got those filters in place. And, and he had the same filters with the Apostle Paul when he called him to come and follow him. He didn't say, hey, Paul, um, it, it, I'm going to give you a new, a new job and it's going to be really fun and I just want you to kind of follow me. He actually said to him, I'm going to show you how much you're going to have to suffer in order to be able to spread this message. And it started with him being blinded, you know, straight off. It wasn't like, would you like this job? And here's the list of things that I can attract you with in order to be able to get you to be a follower. No, instead, he was saying, it's going to be tough. And the job description that you're going to have is going to involve, you know, as he, as he goes through it, he ends up saying, I've been, I've been beaten, I've been abandoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've, you know, I've, I've had... People try and kill me umpteen times, throwing stones at me. And then he goes to this guy called Timothy and he recruits him, as we've already seen. He goes to him in Acts chapter 16 and he says to him, uh, I want you to come and follow me. And you know what the first thing that Timothy had to do? He had to be circumcised because he was from a, a, a Jewish Greek background. But in order to be more acceptable then to the Jewish people and so he could go into places that he wouldn't be allowed to go otherwise, he had to be circumcised. Now, thank goodness we don't have to do that anymore at the moment and uh, don't intend to bring that in as part of the membership requirements of Ivy Church. But the, you can see that there was a cost. See, if you were to look at these different kinds of things, think, what's the difference? The difference is the cost. And ultimately, it cost Jesus everything to get this love to us. But in the end, the people who got closest, they got to hear everything with Jesus. They got to spend the time with Jesus. He unpacked for them the secrets of the kingdom. And, and no wonder they actually said, you know, that's the pearl of great price. Like you said, that's the thing. It's worth giving up everything in order to be able to follow him. And these people from that became the influence for Jesus. These are the people. He'll use anybody he will take a risk on anybody who takes the risk of saying, I'm all in for you. And the more we say that and mean it, it isn't about our gifts and our skills and our charisma. It's about what he releases in us and to us, as we're going to see as we look at this passage today. 
So let me read to you now from, um, from, from 1 Timothy. They get commissioned, finally. Yeah, these people um, who've, who've become the core, they really get the commission. In the end, it's 12 of them, and, and, and well, it turns out to be 11 of them who get the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. It didn't look like a successful mission when the great commission started, but what it led to is you and me now getting the same opportunity to follow Jesus and lay our lives down. So I hope you've got your Bible open. Read it with me as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, Likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. You see, all these are filters. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Fantastic to see you today and to be able to continue in our study as we're looking at 1 Timothy, the first letter of Paul to Timothy. So again, get your Bible open. It's going to really help you to be able to follow along as I now try and unpack and unpick something of these scriptures and to get you started digging into it even more. So much for us to learn. We've been looking just there about the filters effectively of being a disciple. And then there's like another set of filters that are put in place here in terms of leadership. And not just leadership out there, but actually leadership in the church and what it looks like to, for, to be given responsibility by God in his household, in the household of faith, in the church of the living God. And Paul lists here qualifications for leadership God's way. And notice he said... People need to be tested first because as John Maxwell says, everything rises or falls on leadership. As much, if not more, than any other organisation, a church will reflect its leaders. The life of the church, the decline, the growth of the church, what's important is the ministry of the church, the generosity of the church, the testimony of the church, the impact of the church, the reputation of the church, the integrity of the church, the feel of the church, the health of the church. It's all dependent on the leadership of the church. And you can look at church, any church over time, and you'll discover by the nature 
of its ministry what the nature of its leadership is and vice versa. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said, when somebody is fully discipled, the student will become like the teacher. That's really true because it's inevitable. You will become like the one you follow. You'll be like the the one who teaches you. And that means there's an awful lot at stake here. Paul knew that he was a flesh and blood model. He told the churches that he led, follow me as I follow Christ. And, And you know, that's true for me too, by the way. Only follow me if you see that I'm following Christ or any other leader. The Bible gives us tests today as to whether or not the leaders are following Christ. Today's passage is one of the clearest in terms of listing out some of the things that you can observe. This isn't about whether you feel it or not. You can actually observe. These things can and should be tested. But please don't just put me or anybody else against this high standard. I know I'm going to fall short in various areas. Don't waste the opportunity to measure yourself against it and think, how do I need to grow? How far could I grow in influence, in call, in character, in Christ? You may remember we've already said that Paul started the church at Ephesus and he led it for three years and then he travelled on in various ways and then he heard about some things that were going wrong in Ephesus so he sent Timothy back there. Why? Because some false teachers, some leaders who wanted to attract a following for themselves, people who hated godly appointed leadership had infiltrated the church and they were in danger of taking over. They were teaching lies. They were spreading heresies. They were approving of immorality. And so Paul says to Timothy, you're going to have to fight the good fight here. You have to sort out the leadership in the church. They've been lax, perhaps, in in positions of influence. They've been putting the wrong people in place or they're in danger of letting these people have more influence than they should. And Paul knows how incredibly dangerous that is because people follow people and some were being led astray. So Paul lists here some things that we can check out when anybody is looking for a position of leadership or authority. And some of these are going to be prominent upfront facing leadership and some of these are not going to be so prominent but they're still really important and later on these things like overseers and elders and deacons some denominations etc put these as titles but it's not really about titles and if anybody's out for a title I'd say you've got to watch out for them in the first place because they've probably got this whole thing wrong from the start but it's also it's not about gifts He says there's no list on here of how gifted somebody is. It's not about charisma. It's about what's going on in the inside because what's on the inside will eventually be shown on the outside. And it's way better to find that out sooner rather than later. Remember the days when you used to be able to get on a plane and it wasn't as complicated as it was now. And I remember at one point, on, on a couple of occasions this happened, but where I'd sitting on a plane and you're just all getting ready and they're doing the checks and, and you're having your cup of tea or whatever it is. And then 
I remember on one occasion that the minutes turned into nearly an hour and then eventually they said, okay, I'm really sorry, but everybody has to get off the plane. We've been doing our checks and we found a fault and we just need to be looking into that. And it was all a bit like, ooh, and everybody sort of trudged off into the uh, cafe and I don't think they even gave us a free anything. And it was a bit of a pain at the time, but then that hour became hours and eventually we went out and it was a different plane because there was something wrong that, with that plane. And you know what? It was a bit of an inconvenience. But I'd rather they discovered that then than when we were 40,000 feet up. I'd rather that they did those checks. That would have been a lot more inconvenient. I'm glad that the pilot and the crew knew what they were doing and that they'd been tested too. You know, I think that's a lot better system than let's just fly it up there and see what falls off. That's not a good airline. You don't want to fly with them. I'm, as I say, I'm glad that the pilots and the crew get tested because the only time you ever have when just anybody gets to fly the plane, they have a word for that. It's called a disaster movie. And I don't want my life to be a disaster movie. And the church isn't meant to be a disaster movie. So Paul already talked in the letter, in chapter one, if you remember, about people who were confidently wanted to teach, but didn't know what they were talking about. They knew nothing about what they were teaching. And the fact is, these days, that's easier than ever because we have this thing called the internet. It's possible for people to be able to go online and nick a bit of Rick Warren and somebody else and cut and paste and come up with a perfectly good talk. But it's not something that they've even engaged with in their own hearts either. In chapter 2, he says other people were trying to overturn authority in the church and push their own pagan practices and bring those into the church and if you were here last week you can see about that in chapter four we'll look at next week he's going to talk about seduction lies doctrines of demons people not teaching the truth or living it out because what you believe will come out in how you behave and vice versa he says some people were only in it for the money Others just wanted to stir up division and strife and disputes over words, he said, which lead to envy. And then here in chapter three, I don't know what version you've got open, but in the message, it starts out verse one saying, if anyone wants to provide leadership in the church, good, but there are preconditions. What's the filter on leadership? How do we learn to discern this for ourselves and for others? This is such a rich study, and I'm going to pick a few things out, but I urge you to go deeper in your own study in the week with this and also to look at it together in your grow group. I'm going to write a few things down that come out of the passage and, uh, and how it works. We've already heard one, effectively. Uh, the first one I kind of want to talk about, uh, he's already been talking about character because this is what is going on in the inside and then in verse one he says literally if somebody stretches towards being a presbyter an overseer an elder even a bishop different churches give different titles that's not what matters unless as I say it matters too much to you in which case you need to check that he says they have a good longing now my word for that good longing would be a call having a call. Charles Spurgeon, in a book that he wrote to teach his Bible students, he says to them, if you can possibly do anything else, do it. In other words, 
if you can't possibly do anything else other than the thing that you sense God is calling you towards, um, then you know, that, that is a confirmation of a call. You've just got this kind of thing inside of you. It's like, I, I just can't do anything other than this thing that I believe God is calling to you. And there's this sense here about a call being God saying to you, I've got something more for you. And the other thing is, I think the way he makes us, and you want it too. You want it. That's a call. That doesn't mean that you know everything in advance and that you're going to like everything about it. It isn't that something you're kind of just going to go, oh, I can do that easily. The fact is, very often with a call, a genuine call, comes this incredible sense of your own inadequacy. There's this sense that I can't do this naturally at all. And then God says, good, because I'm preparing you for a supernatural work. I remember when it first happened to me, I was about 22, and literally I did stretch out on the floor of my bedroom in the presence of God, this tangible sense of God calling me. And I didn't know what it would involve, but I knew by the end of that time that there would come a time when I wouldn't be in the police anymore and that somehow he was calling me to serve him in such a way it would take me out of the police into being able to tell people about Jesus just all the time. And I was freaked out and weirded out and scared terrified to be honest with you but at the same time there was this little bit of excitement that was like wow wouldn't that be cool wouldn't that just be amazing I just knew if I kept following him the call would become a reality I knew I couldn't do it but I knew he wanted me to do it because he wanted me to be a co-laborer with him this is really what it was all about, to, to work for him full time. And it wasn't about being paid or not being paid. It was just about more opportunity to be all in for him and just to do anything that he wanted me to do and that he asked me to do. And just to give my best and to be freed up more and more to be able to give my best to him. And as you know, yes, in the end, it ended up with me doing this. It ended up with me working for him, but also for the church. But these leaders that Paul's talking about, very few of them would have received payment about this. This wasn't about getting paid to go and work for the church. Later on, Paul does talk about some people getting paid. But at this point, he's not thinking everybody's going to be paid and on church staff to be a co-laborer and to be called. And again, again, it's not about the pay. And that's one of the things that you have to check with regard to character. Paul then tells Timothy to check character. And he says, the only way that you can ever do that is by observing conduct. This is how we check it. It's not about a CV that somebody might present to us. You watch the conduct. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. And sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes the fruit takes a little bit of time to come out. And there are tests of this. And he lists some of them. Whether somebody is serving publicly and prominently or behind the scenes in some other servant area in the church. Because that word deacon just means servant. That's all it means, deacon. We've made it into a title. It's not a, about that. It just means somebody who serves. Now in some of these things, there has a, this shared characteristics, whether you're up front or behind the scenes in your leadership. It says if they're, if they're married, these people who are going to lead like this should only have one partner, just one partner. You can't be sexually active outside of that. You can't have multiple, you can't have affairs. And of course, that doesn't mean you have to be married to lead, just that if you are, you have to realise one's enough. 
Polygamy isn't in it. Monogamy was actually the rule generally across the Roman Empire, but you could kind of have an official wife and unofficial wives. And Paul says, no, that's not going to be the way it's going to be. The Christians are going to be countercultural in the way that they live and the way that they lead. So for us, he says it's going to be one man and one woman for life. As the marriage service says, forsaking all others, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death us do part. And the other shared qualifications that are here are things, some things that he says no to. Things, he says, he says uh, and, and by the way, this is male or female, because later on he says the women likewise. So it's the same for men as it is for women. And he says not to, not to be addicted to wine. Or to be a heavy drinker, to be a drunkard. Self-control is what this is about. So God can trust you with more. He says anybody who's going to lead for God can't be greedy. Can't be greedy for money. You see these things listed. And you can see when these things become apparent in people's lives. And he says they have to be able to manage their household well. Whether you're up front in leadership or you're behind the scenes. Because, why? Because God is looking for people to entrust his family to. If you have kids, I hope you don't just let anybody babysit them. I hope you're going to check out those people beforehand. I, and it, that isn't because you're harsh. It's not because you're judgmental. It's because you love your kids. And this is God's church, he says. And he loves his family and he wants to protect them from evil and from harm. Those are the basic must-haves for leadership. It doesn't say you have to look cool. It doesn't say you have to have tattoos. It doesn't say you have to have a great social media following. But he lists a few other specifics then for those who want to be or end up prominently up front in public. And again, I'm going to run through these really quickly. And some of the ones that are for deacons, servers, servers behind the scenes. So for this lot, he says, first of all, the, if you're going to be up front, you better be above reproach. In other translations say blameless. And I'm like, uh-oh, eek, that is a very high call. Because however hard you try, there'll always be somebody who wants to blame you for something and says that you're doing it wrong. But that isn't really about this. This is about holiness and integrity before God. And it's scary to me, and it should be, because this is about the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. To step up to this kind of leadership, you have to be sober-minded and self-controlled respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And I check myself against that list and I kind of, I don't know what it falls for you, but for me it's really hard to be hospitable these days, isn't it? But it's more of a spirit than an action. Not violent, not quarrelsome, he says, but gentle. Jesus said we've got to come to him and learn of him because then we'll be like him and that's to be gentle and humble of heart. And again, that's been a one over the years that God's really had to deal with me on that. Not a new convert, it says. And I admit, I've got that wrong over the years. Sometimes because I've just wanted to give somebody a chance and think the best and, and we'll work it out along the way. We'll kind of get the plane up in the air and see what falls off. But the problem with that is, I've promoted people sometimes to positions above their spiritual maturity. Usually, as I say, because I wanted to believe the best about them. But sometimes it was just because we needed a gap to be filled. And the problem, Paul says, is when that happens, if you let that happen and just continue to happen, pride is the problem. And you open yourself up, he says, actually for spiritual attack in the church. Finally, he says, when outsiders see that we're not living like this, 
it opens us up the, the church to disgrace. How outsiders see it. They, they can be mercy, merciless, even if the church wants to be merciful. So this is why you have to put these tests in and be accountable up front. Leaders need to step up to a higher standard. Otherwise, however, one day it'll all blow up and then all the secret stuff comes out again. God is not mocked. What was secret gets uncovered. And sometimes that's actually God's severe mercy at work because he wants his church to be holy, to be that pure and spotless bride. So if you want to be stretched to lead in any way, and this isn't even a public or prominent way, and in, and in any area, then as well as those shared characteristics here, if you just want to serve more in the church, he actually has some qualifications and some lists for that. And we might think, well, I, I, you know, I don't think I need to be tested. I don't think, you know, I just want to serve and why won't you let me serve? And, and you can get, you know, bent out of shape and all about that. And, and the problem is that if that's the way you are, if you react like that, you've already failed some of the first tests and you're just proving it again. But he says you're going to show how you live by a life that is been tested and respected, worthy of respect. He said you, we, other people will see it too, but you've got to watch on your lips. You're not double-tongued. The word there, I mean, we might say two-faced, being two-faced. You know what that means. And actually, Christians can sometimes be just the absolute worst at this, being okay to your face and stab you behind your back. He adds in later about not slandering. The word there is diabolos because it's diabolical when we're saying things that aren't true or that we don't know are true about people just because they're not there to defend themselves. Instead, he says, you must hold the mystery of faith with a good conscience. What does that mean? It means you know what Christians believe, you know what the Bible expects, and you're trying to live that way. You're not perfect yet, but you're trying and aiming to do that as well. Now, this final phrase is like, Look after that pearl of great price. Just realise how wonderful it is that God would reach you, love you and help you to represent Jesus in some way and to serve other people for him. And because really uh, the big C for all of this with Christian ministry, these things are all wonderful, but top and bottom, beginning and end, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Not about me. It's all about him. That's the finest filter that God keeps putting us through. Is it all about him? Is it all about him? If not, if it's something else, we need to check that. And that's why I love how Paul just has to finish that chapter with this little song that is written, this little poem that he basically just says, Timothy, I'd love to come and see you soon. By the way, isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't it just wonderful how fantastic? You see, Paul's somebody, he just loves Jesus. That's what it's all about for him. That's the real test. How much do you love Jesus? I had the privilege of meeting Louis Palau. Uh, he came and did launch a few years ago, and he was just this amazing godly man. And Francis Chan sent a message to his family just before the funeral, which I watched some of yesterday. But this is the note that Francis Chan wrote. It says, while I was impressed by his graciousness and charisma on the stage, I was far more impacted by the kindness he exuded in everyday life. He was warm, which ought to be true of those filled with light, but is often not the case. He said, what I remember most was the way he shared with our taxi driver. The gospel flowed so naturally from his lips. It wasn't forced or spoken out of obligation. 
I thank God that Lewis could faithfully preach the gospel for so many years on large platforms and taxi rides. Now, I've worked with people in churches and they had skills or they had gifts. But then after a while, I think, you know what? You never talk about Jesus. I, I never heard you tell me the story of how he changed your life. I never heard you tell me that. You, you never tell anybody else about him unless it's in some official capacity. You're reading something, some kind of official thing, and you're getting paid for that. And it's like, what's that all about? And where's the first love? You see, Paul just had this in him. He just had to praise the one who had saved him, who'd given him the chance to be able to help other people find their way to him too. This little thing that he writes is just about how great and good the good news is and what Jesus did for us. And just reading it again makes me want to worship again. And that's what we're going to do now. So why don't you stand if you're able. Have a little stretch and the band are up here already. I'm going to read this from the Passion Version and then we're going to worship together. It says this. Now you know how to conduct the affairs of the church of the living God. His very household and the supporting pillar and firm foundation of the truth. For the mystery of righteousness is beyond all question. He was revealed as a human being, as our great high priest in the spirit. Angels gazed upon him as a man and the glorious message of his kingly rulership is being preached to the nations. Many have believed in him. And he was taken back to heaven and ascended into this place of exalted glory in the heavenly realms. Yes, great is the mystery of righteousness. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.